0: Consider two different dinner parties. One is a group of like-minded folks who know each other well. There's a real comfort in that like-mindedness, and this comfort might affirm your politics or your worldview, but you're not stretched. Then there's a dinner party with a table filled with people representing all kinds of diversity, age, race, politics, class, life experience, you name it. The conversation is messy, the voice is raised. You don't agree with things that are said, but the insights shared make you think. They test your own assumptions. You drive home and maybe you realize you've had to confront an implicit bias. But it was a great dinner party. This is what I think of when I think of the power of diversity. Our world, my journey through it, is enriched by the diversity of folks around me. When I talk with clients, I describe board meetings that should feel like that dinner party or senior staff meetings. It feels important to reframe the value of diversity to avoid any kind of box checking. As I write this, so many organizations are under attack by those who can't sit idly by, folks for whom this moment in our history is propelling the disenfranchised to raise their voices and to speak truth to power. It's hard to make sense of it all, to know how to respond, to be authentic without being defensive, to honor the voices, to take meaningful actions when decades of systemic racism are infused in our systems and policies. I wanted to explore this And so I invited my guest today to join us. She talks about belonging. This phrase appeals to me. It's a different word from diversity or equity or inclusion. I thought you'd find it valuable to hear her thinking about this framing. God knows in this time and in this moment, we have definitely learned that words matter. Greetings and welcome to my podcast, Nonprofits are Messy. I'm your host, Joan Gary. In my work, I offer counsel and advice to CEOs and boards of larger nonprofits. I'm a keynote speaker, an author of a best-selling book with a very novel name, Joan Gary's Guide to Nonprofit Leadership, and I'm a columnist for The Chronicle of Philanthropy. I'm also the co-founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, an online membership site where we help small nonprofits thrive. But most of all, I consider myself a compassionate truth teller and a champion for board and staff leaders. In my podcast, I dig deep into the issues faced by nonprofit leaders. You can always count on getting my personal point of view, and you can count on experts who will share their expertise in fields ranging from fundraising to leadership transitions, to team building, to board management, to organizational strategy, to self-care, the list goes on. So welcome to Nonprofits or Messy. Let's get started. Neha Sumpat is the CEO and founder of Gen Lead. Belong Lab, where she focuses on building belonging and in true inclusion. Through consulting, training, speaking, and writing, she helps organizations create peak performance, inclusive teams by addressing hidden barriers to belonging, such as imposter syndrome, internalized bias, unconscious bias, generational diversity, distrust in teams, and wellness challenges. She's a nationally sought-after expert in disrupting imposter syndrome and internalized bias, and runs the top-rated Owning Your Value online course to develop inclusive leadership. In her work, Neha leverages her experience working as an attorney at both large and boutique law firms, as well as her tenure as a dean of students and leadership professor. Neha's insights have been featured in Time Magazine, Thrive Global, ABA Law Practice, and a host of others. She holds BA in sociology and political science from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, obtained her JD from UC Berkeley, received her certificate in graduate applied psychology from Golden Gate University, and is certified in Hogan Personality Inventory and Hogan Development Survey. Um, She works across industries from Pixar to Perkins, Coy LLP, then UC Berkeley to the city of San Leandro. You can read a lot about Neha's insights at blog.genlead.co, follow her on Twitter at at @belonglab, or reach her directly at neha at genlead.co. If you didn't get those resources, we're going to repeat them for you at the end. And perhaps most importantly, Neha is the parent of a five and a seven-year-old. And in these times, being a parent of a five and a seven-year-old is a much bigger job than it was about four months ago. Neha, welcome.
1: Joan, thank you. I'm so delighted to speak with you, and I have been looking forward to this conversation. I have to correct you right out the gate that my son is five and three quarters. And precision <laughs> apparently <laughs> is essential. So uh, I wouldn't be doing him justice if I let that five years old slip by.
0: Uh, very good. I, I stand corrected and I understand <laughs> its value. Um, I'm thinking, uh, you know, as I listen to myself read your intro and recognize that you are an educator. Um, I, I would guess that the educator has taken on complete new meaning for you uh, during <laughs> during this pandemic with the um, with your two rugrats at home
1: oh oh wow, you know talk about being challenged to learn new things. Uh, I have taken on the bulk in my family of educating the first grader and the kindergartner, and they 're kind of perplexed because in their minds they know that mama teaches grownups. Like that's how they understand what I do. Uh And so I think their expectations of me were quite high and I suffered a little bit of imposter syndrome, I have to say right at the bat. So I'm like, this is a whole different, Ball game teaching a first grader and a kindergartner. So kudos to these teachers. It's been really illuminating to understand a little more about what it's like to uh, teach young children. But you know it's been a welcome lesson. Boy, when you think
0: about we were talking about this before we started recording that it's 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 intriguing to consider what what we're going to take with us to the other side, which is what I, I can't call it the new normal to the other right. side and. I have to think that one of the things that we're going to take is just a deep, profound appreciation for teachers.
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The flexibility, I mean, just the skill set alone, but also just recognizing the adaptability of these amazing humans and... Yeah, I mean I, I am deeply appreciative. And I and I was one of the ones who was deeply appreciative before, but it is it really takes doing it to uh to really start to get, you know, exactly what it takes and what sort of skill set it takes to the patience. I mean, especially with a with little kids like mine. Woo. woo.
0: Um I um So I think that's a great segue, actually, Neha, because you are an educator and this work does demand a lot of patience. So Mm -hmm. um, I'd love to start with words, what they mean. And I'm hoping that you can help me and our listeners. Um, We talk about diversity. We talk about equity. We talk about inclusion. um, And you note that diversity and inclusion are different frameworks for you different from belonging. So help us understand, talk a little bit about all of those things. And I am a captive audience.
1: Absolutely. So diversity is most often about demographics and it's measured by sheer numbers of people in specific categories of, for example, background, experience, identities, or traits, it tends to be more focused on get them in the door, right? The recruitment and hiring stage of the employee life cycle and less so on the keep them here and benefit from what they uniquely bring, which mm-hmm. is more of the retention engagement development stage of the employee life cycle. So from my perspective, it's short sighted and it often results in disengagement, um, increased internalized bias Attrition of the exact people you are trying to actually welcome into your organization because it's so focused on that first stage and then kind of leaves all these people with all these unique gifts and backgrounds, uh, sort of like, you know, without real engagement once they land in the organization. So that's where inclusion comes into play. So if diversity is getting underrepresented folks into your organization, okay, then inclusion is actually making an effort to include them. So definitely more focused on the retention, engagement, and development. So I see it as a very welcome improvement to the diversity framework. So my problem with inclusion isn't really about the term as it's probably purely defined. It's more about how it tends to be practiced these days. So the problem is that as many studies indicate, the further up the ladder you go organizationally, the less diversity you are likely to see. Mm -hmm. And inclusion tends to be kind of led from the top. It tends to be currently practiced from the top down. So if we're practicing from a homogeneous top down, we're actually not really being inclusive. So what happens is we see leadership base their inclusion initiatives on assumptions, on sweeping generalizations, instead of grounding these initiatives in the actual lived experiences and perspectives of everyone in the organization, kind of what I call the grassroots of the organization, Mm -hmm. particularly the people to whom these uh, inclusion initiatives are targeted. So it ends up exacerbating a disconnect that we often see in an organization between the people in the organization and the leadership. So the way I describe it to clients is, organization organizational leaderships like yay we're being inclusive we have initiative a b and c to really engage people with underrepre- from underrepresented backgrounds and identities and then when you actually sit and talk to people who are you know kind of at the entry level perhaps of the organization they're like well that's great organization you're doing a b and c but my problems are actually x y and z huh. so there's that real disconnect you're solving the wrong problem so let me bring it to belonging and why I think that is a, a better framework. So where diversity is focused on, you get me into your organization, right? and inclusion is you make an effort to include me. Belonging is you make the right efforts mm-hmm. such that I am seen, I am understood, and I'm valued. So that means you have to know what efforts are the right efforts, and you mm-hmm. can't figure that out just based on assumption, you actually have to expand your definition of data to include the lived experiences and perspectives of each individual in your organization. Because belonging, Joan, we've had this conversation about how belonging is subjective and the beauty of that, right? Yes. That what it might take for you to experience belonging in an organization or in a particular community may be very different than what it takes for me to feel like I have a sense of belonging in that same organization, in that same community. So we can't, I can't assume what I need to do to help you feel like you belong. I actually have to ask you and I have to create safe avenues for you to be able to be very authentic and candid with me about uh, what sort of factors have led you to feel like you belong and to feel truly included and valued. What factors have not, when are times you have felt like you belonged in connection with me, Meant with me, When are times that you have felt like you haven't? And so we're talking about it in a one-on-one relationship, but this is exactly what organizations need to do. They need to find a way to create that bridge between leadership and every single person in the organization, because then you're hearing from everyone in the organization as to what they're looking for to feel like they belong. And you're also hearing from everyone in the organization as to what they see as being the unique strengths of that organization, what they see as being the unique challenges of that organization. So you're solving the right problems. Um,
0: Is that why uh, I saw you present and you had this slide that said, belonging is an inclusive approach to inclusion. And I, I remember laughing, but I was also intrigued at the same time. I think that's what you're talking about here, right?
1: I think that's part of it. So that's definitely part of it because, you know, the belonging approach is inclusive from the start. We don't have, again, leadership sitting in a void, defining the problems and mandating the efforts they think that will lead to inclusion. You're actually including everyone and defining the problems out the gate. And another reason why that's so important is because there may be, for example, only one black queer person in the organization. Or maybe only one Latina woman on a particular woman on a particular team. Right. When we look at just the aggregate data, the, which is how we tend to look at things, that's kind of how inclusion is practiced, diversity and inclusion is practiced, the voice of the majority unfortunately drowns out the voice of that minority. So by mm-hmm. engaging inclusively from the get-go and engaging each person in their views, we can actually bring the voices of those onlys or almost onlys to the forefront of the conversation on inclusion. But the other piece of why I call belonging an inclusive approach to inclusion is because truly belonging is for everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it should be for everybody, mm-hmm. but that's actually the truth of it. It should be for everybody. So harken back to Maslow. Uh, Maslow's Oh, the the Maslow's hierarchy Uh, of needs. Was that like 10th grade, maybe? Well, you know, I can't even remember anymore. It might have been 10th grade. Uh, Maslow defined what are the core human needs in this pyramid model. And the base of the model were physiological needs. So food, water, air, then come safety needs. And guess what comes right above that? Love and belonging. Hmm. So belonging is absolutely a need we all as human beings have. Yet, there is tremendous disparity in who gets to meet these needs. And that's really true um, in the belonging. So, let me tell you a story that kind of illustrates this. Um, So, part of what we do, let me set the framework, part of what we do in my organization is we take organizations, our organizational clients, from belonging assessment, where we, again, engage every single person in the organization and hear the voice of every single person in the organization to belonging strategy, helping the organization create a strategy for true inclusion into implementation. So back at stage one, the belonging assessment. So I've had a number of um, organizational clients um, we've been doing this with. And so, uh, usually, what is not an unusual situation is that in a client, there are a number of people who really buy into the quote unquote DNI work, but there are always a few that are like, mm, I don't really get why we need this. That's a pretty typical situation. So in the course of the belonging assessment, something really in this specific client that's really illustrative, I think, of other clients as well, but something really interesting came to light. So as a part of this client's belonging assessment, we did belonging interviews. So I actually met in small groups or one-on-one with every single person in the organization to have a conversation with them about their experience of belonging or on the flip side, their experience of not belonging. And I'd circulated the questions I would be asking on belonging in advance. So they had some time to think before they came into the meeting with me. And yet I still had a number of people come in to their meetings with me, their interviews with me and say that the question I had circulated about, tell me about a time. The question was, tell me about a time you experienced belonging, whether it was in this organization or else in another context in your life, just any time you've experienced belonging. Okay. And so they said, hey, you know, this one group of people, I, I really have been struggling with that question. I don't know how to answer that. And of course, I tapped into my coaching skills and had to dig into that a little bit. And they finally articulated that they found it difficult to answer that question because they actually couldn't think of a time they didn't belong they they always right. experienced belonging such uh-huh. that they never even thought of it as belonging so i had that group of people and then in that same client i had this other group of people who also came in to these interviews and said neha really really struggling with how to answer this question i don't know how to answer it again we dug in and for them It turned out that they were struggling to identify a time they had belonged because they couldn't actually think of a time they had experienced belonging. They could not think of a time. I remember vividly, like the picture is in my head, one individual who told me that the last time she had experienced belonging was when she was 10 years old. So I'm going to take you back past 10th grade to even a younger age. I mean, can you imagine that? No. And so there is this idea of privilege that comes to light and the idea that belonging as it's experienced is a privilege. Um, I will tell you this really interesting tidbit. Like I said, this example is illustrative of what I've seen in other clients as well. And certainly the folks who have kind of taken, had the privilege of taking belonging for granted tend to be more of the white men and mm-hmm. the people, um, the white, straight, cisgender men, the people with, you know, without at least visible disabilities, the people who tend to have struggled to figure out an experience of belonging they've had, you know, tend to be in some or multiple ways marginalized and underrepresented. Mm-hmm. So there is something there. And that moment of recognition of that privilege that belonging should be for everybody, but it hasn't been, has been really powerful in bringing people into the inclusion conversation and helping the or the organization as a whole Really buy into and support the work that came after that because we know this is not a like a quick. We come in and deliver a workshop, and we are like, "Peace out, see you later, good luck." <laughs> I mean, this is a process yeah. that an organization has to invest in, and it's a process that actually never really ends. Yeah, um, uh,
0: what a really powerful story. I, I you know, I want to, I, I want to talk a little bit about. Um, Uh, imposter syndrome and implicit bias, because that has a a place in all of this. But, you know, I devoted a podcast episode to to talking with the author of a book called Blind Spot that spoke to the neuroscience of bias. I learned a lot, and I I actually hope my listeners did too. We're starting to, you know, all of us are learning about, uh, some of us have known, and some of us are on that journey at varying points, the distinction between outright discrimination and microaggressions. Um, and, and you have some really good, thoughtful ways of thinking about bias in the workplace and the different kinds of bias. And I wondered if you could sort of talk through that a little bit for listeners to help them understand that sort of how bias is, uh, sort of how it presents itself.
1: Yeah. So first, let me make a little quick note from my perspective that I don't actually view microaggressions as something distinct from outright discrimination. Ah. I actually think microaggressions are a form of discrimination. Because, Fair enough.
0: I, I'm. I yeah. T- there you t- go. t- 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 yeah. Good. Okay. I got
1: that one. Okay. We're, we're sitting in that. We're sitting. Joan, you and I are sitting at that proverbial um, diverse dinner party right now. And, yeah. And, totally. And, you know, this is what's, this is what's so great about it. Is it's actually
0: interesting because um, here I was thinking that I, um, that I was making a correct distinction having listened to a couple of podcasts that actually articulate that as a distinction. So it's very interesting. So I'm, I'm all in on this conversation. So keep going. Yeah.
1: Anna. And by the way, I did listen to that episode and I very much appreciated it. And I appreciate both of the co-authors' work. Um, yep. Especially that part of the conversation. So I, you know, recommend your listeners go back to that one if they haven't listened to it about good. Um, that whole, there's a whole piece of conversation about the use of good in the title that is really interesting. So Mm -hmm. let's send folks back to that. So, okay. In the workplace, there are a number of ways to kind of splice and dice this. So let me, let me give you one. So we, how I kind of break down bias, I think there's external. Externalized bias and there's internalized bias. Externalized bias is the bias we direct at other people through our behaviors, our attitudes that kind of translate into behaviors, what we say, what we don't say, what we don't do when we don't include certain people in conversations in which they should be included. Um, it's, it's the action with awareness. It's the action. And then there, that gets broken down. The externalized bias gets broken down into Explicit bias or conscious bias. So that's when you're aware you have a bias and you're acting out that bias with some awareness of it. And then there's unconscious or implicit bias. So that's the bias we all have. The biases we all have that we're not even aware we have yet. We externalize them and act, act based on them. Then there's this third category. That's internalized bias. Mm That's the harm that's already been done to the people who have been on the receiving end of bias. Some of these people throughout their entire lives being on the receiving end of bias. So what's been really interesting, what, what I see as an interesting shift that I'm very hopeful is going to happen in the wake of George Floyd's murder and kind of this, uh, I don't know what you call it, a, a reignition or a new sort of ignition of uh, the racial justice movement right. is that we move beyond this kind of check the box on doing an unconscious bias workshop approach to DNI, I think mean, slightly hyperbolic, but kind of not, mm-hmm. and we really we start to expand the vision of what it really means to be an inclusive organization, and that means you have to actually also deal with the explicit biases, the actual like racist comments that people are making that they actually might be aware they're making. Um, And that's what we're seeing happen already. Like I'm seeing clients start to welcome with some trepidation, of course, these honest conversations that start to touch upon the explicit bias. And that was something people were very scared to take on until this moment. So that's great. We're seeing that happen. And what I really want to see happen is a greater focus on the internalized bias piece. So, you have to have it all in an organization if you want to be successful you can't just say hey let me work with the people who've been harmed by bias and help empower them to uproot you know the bias that they have internalized against themselves help them develop and find their authentic voices yet they're still being on the receiving end of externalized bias right then you're just kind of fixing something and the problem keeps happening. So you have to also at the same time deal with the externalized bias. But what I've seen orgs do is mostly focus on one piece of the external, which is the implicit bias. Check that box saying, hey, we did it. It was hip. It's kind of required we do it. <laughs> now we tell everyone we did it. Look what we've done. Um, and, and no real work on, my goodness, we have a responsibility to undo the harm done to the people who have been on the receiving end of bias all the time. And that's where the imposter syndrome piece comes in because imposter syndrome, this is one of our areas of specialty at Generally Belong Lab. Imposter syndrome is that feeling of that you're not cut out for the work you're doing or the work you want to be doing combined with the fear of being discovered as a fraud. So it's like how I felt my first year of law school showing up to UC Berkeley Uh, with a bunch of nerds thinking, yay, I'm a nerd. I found my people. (laughs) And then I show up at orientation and these people are, I mean, they take nerd to a whole new level. I mean, they (laughs) are, they're speaking a language I don't seem to understand because I later realized they had, many of them had spent that summer, that prior summer, working in their parents' law office, their family friend's law office. So they were speaking in legalese and I hadn't had access to that. So in my head, I didn't know that. I just thought, oh my gosh, I don't belong here. Like Mm -hmm. these people are smarter than me. I don't belong here. But some of the seeds of that feeling of not kind of being out of my league, I think is another way to put it, Yep, were sown through my experience growing up as a brown girl in a very white, what was in a very white suburb of Chicago, and all those experiences I had over my lifetime of being excluded, like, oops, we forgot to include you in the honors lunch," and my mom would have to call the school and be like, why, you know, her GPA is high enough, why wasn't she included? School's like, oh, sorry, our mistake, you know, or the teacher, my English teacher, telling my uh, mom that a C was my was my potential. That was the limit of my potential as a quote unquote English as a second language student. Uh, these, these, that damage, that that creates damage. I think yeah. that's my point. And yes. that that damage is compounded as you enter your career. You're not invited to the table to speak. You're expected to fit a mold of leadership created not by you and not for you. And all of that becomes that voice in our heads that tells us we're not good enough. And that is really frustrating for me to to see, especially this is why the belonging assessment is really great too. Because when you talk to leadership, when I talk to leadership, often I'll hear, oh, we don't have imposter syndrome here in our organization. But when I talk to the people working in the organization, almost every single one of them is like, oh, I totally have imposter syndrome. So the organization yeah. didn't actually talk to everyone. They wouldn't know this was a challenge. I am um,
0: struck by something. Um, belonging versus fitting in. Yes. Can you like, so I, I'm, so I'm going to go on a limb here and say that I am sheltering in place. I mean, I'm not, going out on a limb that I'm sheltering in place but I'm, I'm in a small beach town on the Jersey shore mm-hmm. where um we joke that we are diversity here in this town <laughs> that pretty sure oh, yeah. right we're probably uh, it feels like we're the only lesbian couple feels mm-hmm. like we um are going to be one of the few people that will have a democratic a democratic sign on our front lawn mm-hmm. um and we're Jews Okay, and. I've really been thinking a lot about this, about, you know, sort of a block party on our block. Mm -hmm. And how do you, so I've been thinking to myself, you know, are we fitting in or do we belong, Mm -hmm. right? And I think like my wife is just a master gardener and like somehow or another, we have started to fit in because there's a common thread of people just love gardening, but I don't know that I necessarily belong here. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. right and I and so I, I and and I maybe there's also a there, probably for people some people there's also a sort of issue of passing as well but I just wonder yeah you talk, talk to the distinction between belonging and fitting in because I think they're different right yes
1: um yes so I think fitting in is how a lot of people kind of their gut reaction to that question, what does belonging feel like to you? And, you know, a lot of people say it's fitting in. And so I challenge that because I think it, it ideally feels like fitting in. It's this experience of acceptance, but it shouldn't be requiring you to alter yourself yeah. to fit in. And that's, that's the distinction as I think that organizationally, societally, we have expected people who are different than the majority in one or multiple ways to change themselves in order to, like I said, fit this mold of an organization's leadership, a mold that was created based on white, cisgender, straight men with, right. with, that don't have visible or even hidden disabilities. So uh, this is what's going to be really interesting for me uh, because part of what I do is I help individuals find, develop, I would say, it's not really fine, develop work situations in which they can bring more of their true and best selves. Yeah.
0: That,
1: that is not, that is sort of Pollyanna-ish like that, um, because we have really societally bought into the way things are and the way things are is very much created by, like I said, that, that majority, what I see happening um, in this post George Floyd, murder era is that there are cracks really starting to grow, um, in those old structures. And that brings me a lot of hope because we are not true belonging. You are not going to find true belonging in a community. If one, you first don't find that true belonging in yourself and and if you also aren't able to bring your true self and be valued for who you really are to those communities. So that's, that's the kind of the next um, stage that I would love to be a part of shepherding us societally to. Mm-hmm. How do we actually... Oh, let me put it this way. I'm trying to think of a good metaphor. Like you think about seats at the table and diversity being defined as giving people seats at the table. And inclusion right. is maybe along that metaphor, inviting them to speak. Uh, belonging, true belonging, where people get to like bring who they really are is like asking the question, well, what if they don't want to speak? What if they want to do something else at the table? Or actually, why do they even have to sit at this table? You know, <laughs> why a table at all? Right. Um, you know, how do we look to people who have unique backgrounds and experiences and perspectives and say, wow, I want to understand you more. And I want to actually break the mold of leadership and see like what, what mold of leadership can you create if you're being your most authentic and true self? So it's a little, I know, um, abstract this conversation Uh but you know we're in strangely abstract times there's a lot of kind of subconscious chewing I'm doing on a lot of these thoughts but that's where I hope we're going to is that belonging isn't fitting in it's the feeling of fitting in but it it's not through altering yourself it's actually being valued for who you are and that that I that example you gave of the gardening it's so interesting I think there's deep value in finding common connection completely we know that. But where I worry we have gone um, off the right path a little bit is that we've only relied on that. And we haven't said, for example, to your wife, well, tell me more about who you are. I want to understand how you're different than me. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's kind of a hokey question, but in some way trying to appreciate Okay, great. We have this gardening thing in common. What do we not have in common? And I'm so curious and eager to learn more about you. And oh my goodness, that hadn't even occurred to me what you just shared with me. And I'm, I'm just so delighted. I feel like I've been gifted with this greater understanding. Like again, valuing people for what they uniquely bring, and we can see that happen in organizations too if we're willing to kind of break that mold a little bit.
0: I love that. Um, we are talking with Neha. Sampat. She's the founder of Gen Lead Belong Lab. She focuses on building belonging and true inclusion through consulting, training, speaking, and writing. She helps organizations create peak performance, inclusive teams by addressing hidden barriers to belonging, such as imposter syndrome and internalized bias, and is a nationally sought after expert on disrupting imposter syndrome and internalized bias. Um, So, you were talking earlier about this notion that people believe they are doing good things in this arena. Mm -hmm. Uh, But because it is happening, if I'm, again, if I'm getting this right and I've already, I've already learned that if I'm not getting it right, you're going to tell me um, that it's coming from a sort of a top down place. And what I'm seeing a lot of is, um, is that this moment of deep unrest that people are expressing such anger and such hurt and telling such powerful stories um, and and really challenging institutions and organizations in really uh, powerful ways. But what it's doing at times is It's making that institution feel, and I'm just curious about this because I see this a lot, that the work that that has been done has been dismissed or discounted, right? So wait a minute, we've been talking about these issues here at fill in the blank org for a really long time like do we not get credit for that and mm-hmm. I, and i and i know that the output of the outcome of that is a defensive strategy which is is a defensive stance which is problematic but how are you supposed to navigate that when when your intentions and in fact some of the initiatives that you've engaged in you actually think that they've really been valuable but in this moment they've just been just kind of like erased from the hard drive of the organization from the point of view of the folks who are uh, really disrupting.
1: Yeah, I mean, I definitely am seeing this happen a lot over the past many weeks, these issues being raised and and these tensions being experienced. Um, But, you know, this is a journey. You know, this is an ongoing journey. And I think orgs have to really, understand that they are somewhere in this journey, which means hopefully they have made some steps forward. But what is very, very clear is there is a lot more to be done. That Mm -hmm. is very, very clear. So I like to tell my clients, you need to let go of the idea of being a do-gooder. (laughs) because I think, you know, we all like to think of ourselves as good. And we have this kind of, we see this dichotomy that we're either good or we're bad. You know, racist is bad. Not racist is good. Well, I'm here to tell you we're all racist in some way. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, can we be good while also tackling, acknowledging our racism and our biases and, and taking them on? And so I think when we kind of split the world into this idea of good and bad, that's where we get into trouble. That's where we start to feel defensive because all of a sudden we're like, what are you trying to tell me? I've done all X, I've done again, A, B, and C, and you're trying to tell me that now I haven't done enough. You're trying to push me into the bad column. So the mindset shift I tell my clients to really start to embrace, and it's really resonated very well with them, is that you got to let go of that idea of being a do-gooder because that's what keeps you from tackling some of the stickier challenges that need to be tackled. It's, so it's, Dr. Greenwald, um, your guest, touched on this in the, that book he co-authored. And this is what I was referring to when I talked about like that conversation about good. Uh-huh. Um, we can be good and still have biases. And that's an important recognition we all need to make. So I, I actually tell my clients, let go of being a do-gooder. What would it be like to instead be a do betterer, Mm -hmm. right? Like, can you reframe yourselves as do betterers? And how does that help you disentangle yourself from the defensiveness? Yeah. and start to see kind of where you are in this journey and where you need to go. So it's not that orgs don't get credit for what they've done. I do think that there is something problematic of them wanting to get credit from someone, like a pat on the back sort yep, of thing. Yep, <laughs> so there's yep. a whole issue there that you can read about and uh, White Fragility, Robin DeAngelo's, I mean, there are a number of resources out there on that, that's a separate issue. Um, but it's really that there's much more work to be done. So you need to see where you're on in the journey with objectivity. So I like to recommend an actual framework. Uh, that we use in coaching and consulting that I think can help organizations disengage from the defensiveness, hold on to the progress they've made, yet still move forward in this journey. So that framework is the keep doing, start doing, stop doing. So Mm -hmm. as an organization, what have you done that has actually panned out well? And you want to have the data to back it up, right? You should be assessing Uh, how your initiatives are working. And you should be constantly checking in with the people in the organization because what worked two years ago, you may have a different organization with different people in it and it may not be what's going to work now. So there has to be this kind of constant assessment. But you're trying to figure out what have we done that has been successful? And we're going to own that and we're going to be very transparent about that, both within the organization and externally. And we're going to commit to continue doing that. Now let's think about What do we need to stop doing? What initiatives worked before and maybe don't work now? What initiatives probably never worked? What initiatives were the A, B, and Cs that we're now learning we're not solving the X, Y, and Z problems that the people in our organization are having? Let's stop doing those. And And, and,
0: and if I can just interrupt for a second. So um, this exercise needs to be done as part of your sort of assessment belonging assessment, this isn't right this is something that the entire organization somehow or another assesses what what we should keep doing and what we should like it's, it's, the, doing that from the top down doesn't solve your that does doesn't get you very far, does it
1: Well, it doesn't get you very far, and the truth is um, so yes, it should be part of this whole process, but we are at an interesting inflection point societally right and so i'll be honest i'm thinking through that framework for myself. I'm thinking about what have I learned um, since George Floyd's murder and how am I going to be better? How am I going to be a do better? Like What am I going to start doing? What am I going to stop doing as mm-hmm. a human being? What am I going to continue doing? I'm thinking about that for Gen Lead Belong Lab and, and this company. How are we going to use what we've learned um, sometimes our greatest learning is from a place of deep pain and struggle. And how is that going to change us moving forward? So I do think there's something special about this moment in time that really, uh, I think, requires us as an organization to think about what are we going to keep doing? What are we going to start doing? What are we going to stop doing? And you can't do that just from the top down. You have to engage the people in your organization to understand what do they think we should stop doing? Yep. What do they think we should start doing? Yeah. Yep. So you,
0: uh, uh, there's a a good tie here because you actually encourage folks to slow down thinking and processes and decisions Mm -hmm. impacting people. And I suspect that that's tied into this, right? Is you're going to perhaps make decisions differently or your processes might be different or, um, so can you tie those two things together? Maybe just give an example of what you mean there?
1: Uh, Of what I mean by trying to slow things down? Yeah. Yeah. So I think that really comes, uh, you see it most profoundly impactful when it comes to addressing unconscious bias. So what we know about unconscious bias is we're those are shortcuts. The neuroscience of bias is that bias is shortcuts our brains create to process and deal with, not even process, but deal with the ridiculous amounts of data our brains are receiving in a single moment. There's no way we can actually analyze and thoughtfully process all this data we're receiving every every single moment of our lives. So our brain has created shortcuts. Our brain has created categories for us. What happens is the more time pressure we're under, the more overwhelmed we are, the more taxed our brains are, pardon me, the more likely we are to rely on those shortcuts. Right. So we see unconscious bias Play out in a very negative way, for example, when organizations are hustling to fill vacancies, I see this happen in um, you know any organization that's in a growth stage, a lot of nonprofits like all of a sudden some funding comes in and there's some scramble to try to grow in a particular way and and of course you know with nonprofits always trying to do more with less yeah, so the idea of slowing down isn't it is really, it's a hard pill to swallow. But uh-huh. the truth is, we know through social science research studies that if you are going to rush through a hiring process, you are going to be acting out on your unconscious biases throughout that process. You are going to be interviewing people and without realizing it, perhaps having a mini-meet bias where you're like, oh my goodness, this person totally fits. This is another place where that <laughs> fits word yeah. is not a good word to have. Because yeah. what it, it usually means is this person reminds me of myself, right? right. This right. is the person I want to have that easy dinner party with, the yes. one where there isn't um, difference in agreement and perspective. And so you have to slow things down, like literally to give your listeners an idea of what that could look like. And one tactical recommendation is when you're interviewing people, you give yourself a mental break that you don't go from one interview to another. You actually step away if you are capable and interested, go for a walk around the block, do whatever it is to kind of get out of this mental space and slow down your thinking And before you jump back into the interviews, before you jump back into a meeting to discuss um, what everyone's assessment of that particular applicant was, that will actually help you disrupt unconscious bias in that moment.
0: So interesting. So, but you have to see the juxtaposition here, right? You want, you're encouraging people to slow down because it actually, um, it, 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 it Diminishes the 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 unconscious bias, op, the opportunity for the unconscious bias to to come to to surface, but on the right. other hand this yeah. dis- the disruption we're experiencing yes. here is so rapid and the disruption and the the disruptors are so nimble and organizations just don't move so they don't move yeah. quickly that 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 they're being that there's a lot of pressure of a sense of urgency yes. to 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 do better right? Yeah. But I also, but you're also telling me I have to slow down? Like how, okay, <laughs>
1: can you square those things up? Yeah, yeah. So the truth is they're not perfectly squarable away. You know, the, the tension is there. This is not a science, you know, like there is, this is not something you're going to get with precision. So it's a, it's absolutely a tough balance between mobilizing uh, with agility and being thoughtful and deliberate. Where I think some organizations run into problems and this actually ties in imposter syndrome, but that's for a whole other podcast. You have to stay away from perfectionism because I think of perfectionism as like almost toxic thoughtfulness and deliberation. Uh Nothing about this process is perfect. Like you talked about that great dinner party. These were messy conversations at that great dinner party. Yes. There was nothing perfect about that great dinner party. But you also don't want folks to rush and be more reactive than they are proactive and and actually responsive. So how do you balance that out? Um, you know, I think, I think the frustration for some is that in this moment are that organizations are about organizations that are merely well intentioned or even worse. Ones that are not even well intentioned, but are just in this for the optics. You know, I keep thinking about the statements that have come out over the past month from companies and other organizations. Uh So the pressure we're seeing now is for organizations, not necessarily to like hurry up and, and fix this problem, but more about how do you move from being well intentioned to catalyzing those intentions into action? So when you put out a statement saying you condemn racism as an organization and you're committed to inclusion, Well, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. What exactly is your plan for showing that commitment through action? How are you going to hold yourself accountable as an organization? So there's this quick balance here. Like I talked about the three stages in the belonging process of assessment, strategy, implementation. This is a moment where it's a perfect example of when you actually are going to skip to some implementation right away. I've seen a lot of clients, again, you know, bring in uh, conversations on allyship and ignite conversations on allyship, on anti-Black racism. These are really good steps. You don't want to wait till you get to stage three of the belonging process to actually start to offer some of the learning and conversation. One tactic that we've had a lot of success with, particularly in this time of physical disconnection through COVID-19, and now, you know, dealing with uh, or trying to really change this moment into a movement, so to speak. And Uh I don't know who said that first. I wish I could credit them, but it wasn't me. Um, So we do this thing called Leadership Summit Series. So we um, offer small group sessions in an organization and we strategically mix them up. Um, So we have people from different roles, different parts of the hierarchy in an organization, different backgrounds. And we tackle in these small group, they're basically small group facilitated sessions. We Uh facilitate them. Everyone engages in some piece of media. So for example, uh, one of the ones I'm working with one of my clients on is um, Timamanda Ngozi Adichie's TED Talk on the danger of a single story and how that kind of relates to bias. And it's a beautiful TED Talk. I encourage people to check it out. And what we do is we engage a small group with that TED Talk together. And then I facilitate a conversation where my goal is to help people share their stories, So, you know, people are going to have different opinions about what they heard the presenter say. Yep. I'm going to say to them, I'm curious. I want to know more about why you feel that way. And the idea is to get them to share their stories. So it ignites conversations on the quote-unquote hot topics of the moment. It creates a smaller, more safe, facilitated space to have those conversations. It facilitates connection. And when people start to share their stories, I mean look people are we know through data 22 times more likely to remember a story over facts alone so yep. we want people to tell their stories when i hear your story joan i uh, that that's what i remember and i start to develop empathy for you yep. and when i develop empathy for you i'm actually organically disrupting my biases against you biases i may not even know that i had so it's a really great way to connect people in this difficult time to get some momentum going forward by talking about some of these difficult issues in smaller chunks so it's not overwhelming. But those are the sort of steps an organization can take that kind of is a little more informal. It doesn't require bringing someone in and organizing like a 500-person uh, workshop, so this
0: Well, let me, let me tell you what, we're, we're actually about... Out of time, perhaps more than out of time. And I, and the question I was actually going to ask you was, do I need a facility? Do I, do I need, clearly anyone would be lucky to have you work with them, but can, these are what you just described are things a, any organization can do, right? So there's, there's, it's not like, I mean, I, I guess there's a, there's a certain, there's a, <sighs> a certain sense that I, I don't know if I feel equipped or do, am I too much of an imposter to facilitate a conversation because I'm, you know, because of my white privilege, but there are opportunities for organizations to engage in these conversations without bringing someone in from the outside. Right.
1: I think it depends on the trust in the organization. It depends on where they're at in this journey. Um, I think that there's a, the the bigger the disconnect between the leadership and the people in the organization, the harder it's going to be to have a successful facilitated conversation at house. Certainly right. you and I both know as you and I are both facilitators that facilitation is an expert skill. Yep. So you need to have someone who at least has that facilitation skill set. But I also think, you know, organizations need to be very thoughtful and strategic about how do they create safe spaces for conversation. And and oftentimes when you try to do things internally without the expertise, if you don't have the expertise in diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, you can end up doing more harm than you do help. But yeah. if you have people in-house that are skilled facilitators, um, you know, that, um, you know, it doesn't have to be someone who's had any formal education at it. Let's be honest. You know, people have, Gained facilitation skills through many different of course. Uh, yeah. avenues, right? Yep. Um, yep. So yep. finding finding the good facilitators who are trusted, I, I think it's doable. But again, it really depends on. Mm-hmm. It's going to depend on the organization.
0: So I want to uh, I I, I want to leave um, this oh, podcast I, with some resources.
1: I, yeah, I want to give you resources, but I re- want to rewind a bit just to the assessment stage. Yeah, please. That's where I think you really need to have someone from the outside do the belonging assessment Uh because people are not going to speak candidly with someone internal. There's just the power dynamics in the way our organizations currently are structured. It it is, you're going to be hearing from people what they think um, you want to hear. And so that's where I think you really, you know, organizations want to be really careful to get someone that. Can develop trust with their people from the outside. So I think that's your smart. question. Yes.
0: So I want to I want to leave listeners with um, with a uh, with having you point them to your resources or any other resources you think would be valuable as we close ourselves out here.
1: And Jim, your friends are my friends, so I absolutely welcome any of your <laughs> listeners to connect. I'd love to hear different perspectives on these topics. Uh, folks can reach me directly at Neha N E H A at Genlead, that's Gen Lead. That's G E N. L E A D dot CO, not com dot CO. And our website is www.genlead CO. I invite part, uh, listeners to actually check out our blog. There's a lot of great free resources, little blog posts, as well as links to videos we've recorded on a number of the topics that Joan, you and I discussed today. Um, so yeah, and, and of course I'm at Long Lab is our handle on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And, you know, welcome folks to reach out to me on LinkedIn as well. And I've had to kind of up my social media game and I've learned a lot from my millennial friends on that. And followed so well, and that's
0: well, a, that may be a conversation for another day. So that's another um, one of your sort of areas, areas of, uh, Expertise is sort of the multi generational mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. diversity. So um, perhaps we'll just we'll 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 tease the view, the tease our <laughs> listeners that maybe that's a, another thing we can tackle on another day. But in the meantime, I just wanted to say thank you so much. This is um, I found the conversation incredibly enriching. Uh, usually, I interrupt my guests a whole lot more than I did today because <laughs> I was actually listening and um, and I just thought everything. That you had to say was so valuable at right, right message, uh, right messenger, and right time. So Neha, thank you so much for being with me.
1: Joan, that truly means so much to me. Uh, if you could see me, you'd see me smiling and practically blushing through my brown skin. So thank you very much. It's been a, a really enjoyable conversation for me as well. And, um, you know, I feel valued. I well, really appreciate that. So thank um, you so much.
0: Thank you so much. And uh, for all of you out there, um, I hope you found this conversation as enriching as I did. Um, please stay healthy and safe. And um, as always, thank you so much for the work that you do. Take care. Thanks so much for listening. And I hope you found the conversation to be valuable. If you enjoyed the podcast, remember to subscribe to it. And if you're feeling especially generous, leave us a review. Turns out that reviews really matter. They help people discover the podcast. And if there's anything in this episode or any episode that really struck you as an aha moment, we'd love to know. Shoot us an email at podcast at joangary.com. And if you'd like to learn more about nonprofit leadership, head on over to my website at joangarry.com. That's J-O-A-N-G-A-R-R-Y.com. It's full of advice and resources that you can put into action right away. And make sure to enter your email address so I can send you a surprise I think you'll find helpful. And if I haven't said it lately, thank you. Thank you so much for the important work you do every day to make this world a better place. I'll see you next time.